0: Hello, everyone. You're listening to Night's History Cast, where we have conversations about history. This podcast is brought to you by the University of Central Florida's History Department. In this episode of Night's History Cast, I had the pleasure of talking with Alexis Castellanos, who is an author and an illustrator, and who also was a part of panel one of day one of the Operacion Pedro Pan event, Operation Peter Pan event that took place here at the University of Central Florida on March 28th, 2023 which is the same day that this recording took place. When I found out about this event, I was immediately in awe because of the very nature of what was being discussed. This historical event that often gets overlooked in Cuban American history and Cuban US history. And when I saw the roster of participants that were going to be involved with this event, I was like, my my level of interest increased, right? So I looked at the scholars and I was like, this is a really good roster of scholars. Then I saw panel two and I was like, wait a second. They're actually involving people that went through this program as minors and who are now elderly. And they're going to be talking about their experiences. They're going to be talking about the actual history. They live the actual history. And that just took my interest and my awe to unimaginable heights. Truly, I'm being so honest right now. And I immediately was like, I need to have Night's History Cast episodes to highlight this transformative, significant, beautiful, powerful event that will be taking place. And that's exactly what's happening. So this episode that you're listening to is sort of part one of a little mini series within Night's History Cast about this event, about this Operation Pedro Pan, Operation Peter Pan event. And this episode features a panelist from panel one. The next episode will feature a panelist from panel two. And then the final episode will be with the organizers, the coordinators of this event, more of the technicalities that is just as important because without their work, without their diligent work, this event wouldn't even be possible. So they deserve a space on this platform as well. So honing in on this specific episode, Alexis, about a year ago, March, 2022 came out with her first historical graphic novel, titled Isla to Island, which is out everywhere you get books, and I highly recommend getting it. And I'm going to quickly read a summary in her website about this book. This stunning, wordless, graphic novel follows a young girl in the 1960s who immigrates from Cuba to the United States and must redefine what home means to her. Marisol loves her colorful island home. Cuba is vibrant with flowers and food and people, but things are changing. The home Marisol loves is no longer safe, and then it's no longer her home at all. Her parents are sending her to the United States, alone. Nothing about Marisol's new life in cold, gray Brooklyn feels like home. Not the language, school, or even her foster parents. But Marisol starts to realize that home isn't always a place, and finding her way can be as simple as staying true to herself. But you know what's better than me reading just a summary of a book? Talking to the actual author the brains behind it. And that is exactly what this episode is about. So I talked with Alexa Castellano about her, her graphic novel, Ilata Island, which is very much rooted in the history of this event. And we also talked a little bit about her involvement in panel one and some of the things she talked about and she highlighted during the event. We also even went into panel two a bit. We talked about history, which is what this podcast is about, but in such a different perspective in such a different medium, you know, in this graphic novel that this podcast has never seen before. So please stay tuned. I promise you'll enjoy it. And enough of me talking. This has probably been the longest intro I've done, but I had to, you know, set the stage, give the context of this event. But enough of me talking. Enjoy the podcast and cue that music. Hello, everyone. This is Sebastian Garcia from Night's History Cast, and I have the pleasure of talking with Alexis Castellanos, who was first in the panel one today of the Operacion Pedro Pan event here at UCF, which was a fantastic start to it. I say start because tomorrow will be day two, which you will also be a part of um, quick bio of Alexis Castellanos. She was born and raised in Florida where she enjoyed sunny days, dramatic thunderstorms and delicious Cuban food. After graduating from college, she moved to New York City and worked as a scenic artist, bringing theatrical sets to life with a little bit of paint and a whole lot of ingenuity. She currently works as a graphic designer by day and spends her nights dreaming up stories. She lives in Los Angeles with her partner and her cat. Ilata Island is her first graphic novel. So welcome, um, Alexis, to the show. I'm happy to have you on.
1: Thank you. I do have to, I realize there's one correction in the bio. I now have two cats. Okay, there you so go. I live with my two cats nice. in L.A. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you.
0: Um, there's a lot in that bio that I want to dive deeper in. So first, let's start with your early life. So yeah, it says here you were born and raised in Florida. So how did you know your early childhood and also your cultural, like your ancestry, kind of shaped your understanding of the world?
1: Um, so I was raised pretty much by my mom. She divorced my dad when I was five years old and we briefly live with my grandparents. Um, and being a single mom in the nineties, she was working late a lot. So I spent so much time with my grandparents and my grandparents are definitely, they were th- that part of the Cuban exile community that was, that, that kept that dream alive of Cuba without Castro and the Cuba that they can return to. So that is something that they shared with me. At a very young age, one of the only belongings they were able to bring with them from Cuba were their photo albums. So they had, you know, that was something they had to share with me. And I was very interested in it. And I was always asking them questions. So I've always felt really connected to my ancestral history. It's always been something my family has gladly shared with me. Spanish was my first language. My first word was arro. So, you know... (laughs) (laughs) It was ingrained there from a very young age um, for me to feel connected to that. Um, and living in Miami in the 90s, it was hard not to feel connected to being Cuban. It right. was everywhere. It's, you know, the majority. It's still the majority yeah, of Miami to this day. 100%. So, like, when Elian Gonzalez happened and that was on the oh, news and mom. then we got a TV movie, I'm like, oh, the, this is the world knows about Elian Gonzalez. No, it was just Miami. It was, right. it, the, Miami had so much power within it that... um. Yeah, I I was never far from my culture.
0: Yeah, that's an excellent point that you made because I'm also um born, I was born and raised in Miami. So I definitely understand what you're trying to say that, you know, me personally, I'm not Cuban, but I have a lot of Cuban family and friends. And, you know, it's hard not to feel still really close to your ancestral heritage as in history, as you were mentioning. And physically speaking, it's like 90, it's 90 miles away, the proverbial 90 miles. So yeah. for sure. Yeah, I want to talk more about the photo albums and how that was really something very transformative for you. Um when you mentioned that today in the panel, I was like first of all, I didn't know like the details of how many how like in number the quantity of stuff you could take when you were leaving the island. I didn't I didn't know that like that detail. So then when you said that and then they only really brought the photo albums, I mean have you asked them why? They, like out of all the items they, they could have taken, it was that?
1: It was the only thing they were allowed, allowed to Allowed to, okay. Yeah. My grandmother, I think she was able to bring a bracelet that mm-hmm. sh- had been gifted to her. But that was like pretty much it. They weren't allowed to bring everything they owned became the, the property of the mm-hmm. government. And as soon as you applied for a freedom flight, you lost access to everything that was once yours. It was the government's property and they were taking it away. If you wanted to leave, you couldn't have anything. And I don't know, for some reason, the photo albums were considered something that, you know, I guess Cuba didn't want to right. like, take your ugly faces out of here. I don't care.
0: What a shame. But good for you guys. Yeah. So when did you realize that you were could make a graphic novel about essentially your family's history, but also That part of Cuban history. Like, when did that idea come into your head? Where you're like, "Mm, maybe I could do this, or was that something you've always had in mind since an early age, and it was just waiting for like the opportunity to do it?
1: I've always wanted to be an author. Mm -hmm. I've always wanted to be published. I've always enjoyed writing. I always enjoyed telling stories, but I never imagined telling a story like that. Like the stories I wrote as a kid were like fantasy books about vampires and werewolves, and I still love writing that stuff. Right. I love writing romance. I love writing fantasy uh, second world fantasy so those are always the things i imagine myself writing i never imagine myself writing something this personal and it came to me very quickly it was summer 2016 i was in a bookstore i was looking at the shelves trying to come up with an idea and i saw that there were like no latin american stories on like the bestseller shelves thankfully now Mm -hmm. today that's changed we have so many great latin american authors being published in the children's book space But at that time, the only book on the shelf that I saw was Esperanza Rising, which was published, you know, 2001. Yeah. Many, many years ago. So at that moment is when I decided, okay, I want to write a book and I want it to be something about being Cuban. And I wanted it to be... It all came very quickly. I couldn't tell you step by step what I was thinking, mm-hmm. but I knew, okay, Cuban, what, what, and I wanted it to be historical. And considering what was happening at the time in the U.S., when we were getting all these stories of children in cages at the border, of families being separated at the border, Operation Peter Pan was top of my mind. And it, I think it's an important part of Cuban American history, and uh, I wanted to highlight it. And yeah, f- very quickly from there, it all came together. I, uh, really just like a, the, hit me in the face, mm-hmm. uh, which was really cool. I've never had a, a book come to me like that before.
0: And the fact that it's your first graphic novel was probably even more surreal for you, oh, yeah. right? Yeah.
1: yeah. I I mean, when I was in middle school, I loved reading manga, and I was like, I want to be a mangaka. <sighs> and then I was like, wow, drawing is really hard. Yeah. And it is. Mm-hmm. So that dream, I mean, I had it. I, I I would draw all this time. I'd make comics for my friends. And then in high school, I started getting into theater. And then that took all my time and I stopped drawing as much. So then when I got this idea, I was like, man, do, do I think I can do a graphic novel? And I was like, sure, why not? <laughs> <laughs> um, and, then, and then I did it. So, yeah, it was, uh, everything about this book took me by surprise.
0: And, you know, you said something in your previous answer that, you know, it's very important to obviously the story you're trying to tell, but also to just the discipline of, of history. You wanted to root your your story in the broader historical context of what was happening between Cuba and the United States. Why was that so? Like, why did you want to do it like that?
1: I think that sometimes it's easier for people to have empathy and understand current events through the lens of history. Correct. And so that that's why I thought the story would fit, also as a Cuban-American, the way that immigration played a role in my life is very different from other Latin American communities. Mm-hmm. Like I never had a fear immigration knocking on my family's door. They were given a really easy path to citizenship. Right. A- and you see that with Operation Peter Pan, too. Like these kids were given a very easy path to the United States and they were protected in a way that many other kids who are in exile don't get the same treatment. Right. So I wanted to highlight that. And uh, I-, I just think the story is universal to many experiences. When I was at my high school early this week doing um, a school visit, the librarian was telling me that she found this book to be really important to her current students. The community now where I went to high school, the demographic has changed considerably. There's a large Latin American population, and there are a lot of students that were displaced by Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico and now live in that area. Mm-hmm. And the, those students connected with this story because... I firmly believe that there is in specificity you find um, I forget the phrase. It's like you find the universal in specificity. So yeah that's why I I approach this time period and why I approach this story.
0: Correct me if I'm wrong but your parents when they came from Cuba to the United States it was not through Operation Peter Pan.
1: No they were uh, both my mom's family and my dad's, dad's family came through the freedom flights. The
0: freedom flights. Okay. But you know and I know you kind of already said it, but what was the reason? Because, you know, the Cuban exodus, and this is something that they talked about at length at today's event, you know, is the Cuban exodus has different phases, you know, and even within Operation Peter Pan, it has different phases within that. Well, in the program, it's two-year history, but even some of the scholars at the panel were like, okay, actually it was it played out five years, which yeah. is really interesting, that perspective. But the point is the Cuban exodus, and it's something that, you know, it's still very much alive today that it was also being mentioned. So my question is, you know, you could have picked that particular era of the Cuban exodus, the freedom flights. You could have picked the Mariel boat lifts in the 80s. Was there any reason why you felt strongly connected to Operation Peter Pan instead of those other phases of the Cuban exodus to tell this story?
1: Yeah. I mean, I've always been really fascinated by uh, Operation Peter Pan. It's always been something I was interested. In. I don't even remember the first time I heard about it um, because... None of my like immediate family was a part of it, but I have some some distant relatives. It just felt like the right point in history to tell this story and to tell the story the way that I wanted to, which was a book without dialogue, without words, told completely through pictures and through color about a, a child who is isolated. I, I don't think I could have gotten the same story out of those others. There, other stories would have fit right those different periods. But for this story in particular, it just Peter Pan was the the point in history from the beginning for me.
0: So let's talk more about the book now that you've mentioned it. So Ilata to Island, you know, the the translation is Island to Island. What was this is me being very curious. So why did you decide I could I don't want to, you know, assume your answer. So that's why I'm asking you. But why did you decide to put the first one in Spanish and the second one in, in English?
1: So. The the title also came to me immediately with the story. When I tell you this, hit me like a lightning <laughs> bolt. Yeah, I knew it happens. I knew like several things immediately. For I sure. knew the title. I knew the time in history. I knew that this girl was gonna go from her family in full color to New York City in black and white. Mm-hmm. And I knew that there was gonna be no dialogue. All of those things came to be very quickly. And I couldn't tell you any individual idea or decision I made that led me to that. But Isla de Island just made the most sense. My family when they came here. Um, they left Cuba. They were processed through the Freedom Tower in Miami, and then they went to Queens, which is on Long Island. Mm-hmm. It's an island, so it was it was just like the a very accurate way of describing her journey right. from you know a Spanish speaking island to an English speaking island and that kind of journey is represented in small ways throughout the book and it wasn't initially my idea; it was my editor who came back to me. And I will have to say, I got very lucky with my team. My agent and my editor are both Cuban. Mm. And that's in publishing, which is predominantly a white industry. Mm -hmm. I I was very lucky. It was my dream and it happened. So um, I had some great insight working on this project with them. And my editor came back to me and she was like, what about like if all the onomatopoeia that happens in the book starts in Spanish and continues into Spanish until she starts adjusting to this new, new life and some English words creep in? So you see that journey from from Spanish to English in several ways throughout the book to kind of show how she's adjusting and how she's adapting to this new life.
0: And how much of your mom and her her personal life played into this story? I mean, is it fair to say I you said this in the in the panel that, you know, this isn't you did not live in a fairy tale that you grounded this story in your own personal family history so how much of your mom's story was part of this story
1: so much of my family's story were like the seeds that became marisol and her family's story um when i first wrote this book there was like a 10 page prologue of how her parents fall in love completely directly pulled from how my grandparents fell in love um and everyone was like you can't have a prologue and that's what the those photo album pages at the front that's like my very stripped down prologue And another huge seed from my mom's life is she came to this country when she was eight years old and she didn't speak any English and you're just thrown into school. Um, And it's like sink or swim. And she was teased and tormented by the other students. And she was determined to teach herself English. And so she got access to one book and she taught herself English from that book. And she was like, I'm going to be better at speaking English than anyone else in this world. So that, Mm -hmm. that idea that this girl was so strong and so capable and so hardworking that she picked up a book and allowed that book to be this tool that let her adapt and succeed in this world that was, you know, working against her. I've always loved hearing about my mom. I've always asked her to tell me about that. Um, and that is a huge part that I, I stole and uh, made uh, Marisol's story.
0: I know you mentioned it, that this was part of one of those natural things that just kind of you know, clicked in your head as the moment you knew this book or this project was going to get realized. But, you know, when the character is in Cuba, her life's in color, as you said. And then when she finally arrives in New York, it's gray. So number one, that's kind of like with retrospect, now that, you know, the book is out and you've had some time to talk about it with several people. Like, what was your decision behind doing that? And also particularly when it, it, when, it is in gray. The only colors that at least in the beginning that flash out are red, yeah, so what's the symbolism behind that?
1: So like in Western culture, predominantly red is like a color with some like either negative connotations or yeah. like extreme emotions, right. So I wanted to keep that color. She has a flower that her dad gives her, and that's red, and it's the like the last piece of Cuba that she has that still has some color in it, and her cheeks get red from the snow and the cold. She gets her period, which is red. Her F on her papers are red. And it's like um, indicating all these like negative and challenging things that she's experiencing without her her parents there to support her. So I thought that that, that was going to be a helpful way to guide the reader through this story. If I wasn't going to have words, I needed to use color as a narrative tool. And, you know, I have a, a BFA in theater design and technology uh, and a lot of that that time in school was spent focusing on design and the power of storytelling that design has. So that has always been a way that I think about stories is visually. So the, I I really looked at this book when I was working on it as like producing a play. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a pantomime. So I'm thinking about body language. I'm thinking back to my acting classes, uh, how we use our bodies to tell stories and how we use um, color and staging to tell stories So all of that fed into how I approached the story that didn't have any
0: dialogue. Right. And first of all, I I haven't mentioned this yet, but that's number one. I give you tremendous credits for producing such a well narrative story without any words. I mean, that's extremely (laughs) impressive. Thank you. So yeah, so much props to you. And when Marisol starts seeing... Or at least in the stories, the the colors green and blue come into play. What what's the symbolism behind that transition?
1: Those are the, those are the first colors that come back, and they're colors that are kind of associated with nature the mm. the blue sky and the lush green uh, of tropical Cuba. But the the colors in New York are slightly different from the colors back home. So it was a way of showing her her connection to the things that she loved, which is like botany, but that they're slightly different and they're changed. They they're the same but different in this this new life that she has in New York.
0: And you know, like going after being a part of the the day one um event of the the broader um Operation Peter Pan program here at UCF for these two days when we're in the part 2, session 2 uh with the the surviving survivors of some of the people that were as minors part of that program and now obviously they're um, elderly and seeing you know and i'm and i'm i'm assuming this probably you had this sort of a, sim- a similar feeling when you were developing the book because you you know again your parents weren't part of that your mom wasn't part of that specific program but you know you knew the history you had some distant relatives that were a part of it but like hearing their stories and now seeing this fictional character's story it's like yeah she's fictional but it's so real yeah. you know and that just makes it so much more powerful. So, like, what what are your thoughts on that?
1: It was super fascinating. I have uh, an uncle that was in Operation Peter Pan. He was in uh, Camp Matacupe for a little bit before he got, like, placed with uncles. He he wasn't in the program for very long. Um, and I've definitely – they mentioned all those groups online that they're a part of. I stalked those and I read their Facebook posts and I read their blogs So it was so incredibly cool to hear them speak in person about these experiences and tell their stories um, directly and answer questions. I'm not going to lie. I was like a little terrified. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Like, who is this kid who's written a story about like my life experience? Mm -hmm. Um, So I was terrified to speak to them. Um, But I'm so grateful that I had that opportunity to listen to them speak um, and share their experiences you know cuz they they were varied experiences but yeah. they still had so much in common even the the person in the audience that was another family member yes. that experienced it and they all have such positive memories mm-hmm. um around this program and how this program is still influential in this lo- in their lives to this day decades later Yeah
0: 100% I agree with you um and I could definitely see your, I probably would have felt the same <laughs> if I was in your shoes um yeah cuz that, that that's tough but I'm glad that they that you've received positive reception from this book. So there was other elements that you mentioned when you were talking about your book in the first panel and you know some of the things that you emphasized were the religion theme. So can you talk to us a little bit about how religion played um was an influential factor in this story?
1: Yeah, I mean, today when we were hearing them yeah. speak like clearly Catholicism is still an important part of their lives. Right. And since this whole program was run through the the Catholic ministries A lot of the people, not everyone who went through the program, but a lot of the people who went through the program were connected to Catholicism. And when I lived in Brooklyn, Carroll Gardens uh, is historically an Italian-American neighborhood, which is another community that is historically incredibly Catholic. So I really wanted to keep that thread of telling these stories about these, these families who are connecting through religion. And as they mentioned, like at this time, mass was still in Latin. So the mass that, you know, she would have experienced in Cuba is the same mass that she was going to in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean, you know, you have the crucifix on the wall because when I... I got an internship in New York City straight out of college. And my mom was freaking out because she hadn't lived in New York City um, since the 70s. Mm. And she was convinced that like I was going to die on the streets <laughs> of New York. And I was like, it's different, mom. It's OK. And she's like, oh, God, where are you going to live? She was freaking out. She was like going on weird blogs trying to find me roommates. I was like, that's not how it works. And the, the person that ran the internship at Juilliard uh, was like, oh, here's a housing opportunity. It's like $800 a month. And you live in a Catholic dormitory. You live in a steel single bed with a crucifix on the wall. And I was like, I'm not doing that. So me personally, you know, I was raised Catholic. You know, my grandparents made me do my communion and they forced me to go to mass. It's not something that, you know, culturally I have a connection to it. Mm -hmm. But uh, it's not really a part of my life anymore. But I knew that it was important for the story because so many of the people that did go through that program do have that deep connection to Catholicism. Um, and it's just so deeply rooted in it
0: yeah for sure it's it's definitely you know a natural fit to the story because that's what actually happened to these people as we learned today um, with those three survivors that were sharing their stories.
1: yeah, and these foster families they were they were found through the Catholic ne- networks mm-hmm. yeah so, exactly uh, that's in my mind her her foster parents in the books were you know Catholics, they hear about this, and they're mm-hmm. like, oh, we want to help. Uh, there's a lot that happens in my head in this story. (laughs) It's like, if you want to know the behind the scenes secrets of what these characters are thinking.
0: Yeah. I mean, I mean, if you, so what what are some of the ones that are like the most like biggest ones that you would want to share with us?
1: I don't know. It's definitely that, that they would have found out about this program probably through their, their church or whatever. But I'm not going to lie, there's so much I forget since you don't see the characters' names. Right. I forget what I name them sometimes. Like I know Paul and Jody are her foster parents' uh-huh. names. Uh, I don't think you ever see their first name, but there is a piece of mail where you see their last name, which is Delfino, and I read a review once and it was like saying something and it was like and Mr. and Mrs. Delfino, and I was like who are the Delfinos? <laughs> and even I contacted my agent, she was like I had I had no clue who they were talking about. <laughs> So there's a lot about the book that I put in there that I forgot. And there's a lot about the book, like the characters' names. I mean, I threw so many things in there that are personal nods to my family. Yeah. Like there's a bust of Jose Marti in um, one of the early pages where they're in her family's home. My grandfather had a big bust uh-huh. of Jose Marti. L- lots of little things. Basically, every number you find in the book is going to be a family member's birthday.
0: That's awesome. So like
1: a license plate, I, yeah. all of that. I
0: was going to ask. That was going to be one of my like. You know, questions coming up. What what are some of the Easter eggs that you dropped in this oh, know, yeah. story? Oh
1: yeah, all of those. And then, as I mentioned in the panel today, when I gave this script to my mom um, very early on, and I was like hoping to get notes from her uh, that helped me make this story like more historically accurate and grounded in reality, or whatever. Right. And her only note was. I wore saddle shoes. And I was like, Mom, you're younger than her. This is not quite the time period that you were in the US. Right. She was like, She should wear a saddle. So every time she wears saddle shoes in the book, it's because my mom kept telling me, Well, I wore saddle shoes. Yeah. I was like, This book isn't about oh, yeah. you. <laughs> and then the other thing she told me was Well, when I first went to school and I went to the lunch and they gave me one of those little cartons of milk that was nasty just drinking milk without sugar or anything because you know cubans right everything needs to be have sugar in yeah it. so she was like <laughs> yeah. that was so gross so there's a scene where she has her milk there i mean i also mentioned that some of the photos in that early part are uh, <laughs> copies of photos that yeah. i have of my grandparents and you know lots of little things like that like i lived in brooklyn so I I made them live in a Brooklyn Brooklyn brownstone with beautiful original um, woodwork mm-hmm. because that's something I love about Brooklyn brownstone. So it was so cool being able to live in at least one of the cities where this story takes place. Yeah. Um. And I, I mean I love New York City. I have a, a you know a deep love for that city. So I was very happy to tell a story there.
0: And you know one of the things that I found first of all I liked it in your presentation when you uh, showed the the side by side comparison of that photo album picture and like how it was drawn in the story and it's like identical essentially that was really cool (laughs) one of the things that you mentioned in your presentation that i wrote down i was like i want to ask her that later today is um you skipped the miami part of the story yeah why why was that so like as an author as a storyteller did you just not find a natural fit? Like what why what was the decision behind doing that?
1: Because there was no dialogue and I thought the story it would it would have been way too confusing yeah, um to fair. put that part in because it's like you're being processed, you're being put in temporary housing or you're being connected with the social worker and there wouldn't have been a super clear way to express to the reader who these people were, what the process was happening. But I could show that when she's in Cuba, she's being handed two tickets, two plane tickets, one to Miami and one to New York to make it clear that there is a part of the story that we're missing there. Uh Um, Because I I did want to acknowledge that kids weren't just being like sent like to random places immediately. There was a, a process of these kids being processed Mm -hmm. either being sent to distant family members or going into the the camps that they mentioned today at the panel but yeah it, it was just by because of the way that i wanted to tell the story it i couldn't really make it fit
0: what do you this is me like off the cuff just thinking about it as you were saying your answer would you ever explore that part of the story like in a sequel
1: uh, <laughs> no, I. To <laughs> put you
0: on the spot, but I you know, I gotta ask it.
1: No, uh, I you know I this story where it is 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 where it's at. Right. Um, as I also mentioned, the panel today, I wanted this story to be a jumping off point mm-hmm. for people to pick this up and be like, oh, I've never heard about this time in history. Um, and I have resources at the back. Uh, because I this isn't supposed to be a definitive explanation of Operation right. Peter Pan, right? right? This is just um, a story I told because I wanted to tell the story in this very specific format to force a reader to experience empathy in this way. And if someone should become interested in lear- to learning more, I- I'm so grateful. And I have had readers tell me that, like, "Oh, I've never heard of this. I maybe want to do more reading, and it maybe mm-hmm. want to learn more about this." And that's. That uh, makes me so happy because that's exactly the reaction I wanted for this book.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the further reading. So for for the listeners, which, number one, I was going to say it's at the end of the podcast, but I'm just going to say it now. Definitely go get this book. It's called Ilata Island. <laughs> it's um available online, right? Mm-hmm. Amazon, Barnes & yeah. all the all the bookstores. And the cool part about this, when I first, when I was doing my research to do this podcast, and Dr. Cecilia Rodriguez Milanes was telling me about all the participants and the people that are going to be involved in this big, awesome event. And when she got to you, she's like, "Oh, she's a graphic novelist, and she just, you know, this is her first graphic novel." And she's like, the, "The cool part is that it's no, there's no dialogue. So even if you don't know English, yeah, you know, you could I, not even English, just any language, like you could understand the story that's being told."
1: The coolest thing I had happen to me is I had a reader reach out on my website to say thank you for the book. And this was um, a Japanese woman that lives in the United States. And she told me that, like, you know, she's not Cuban, but she was a Japanese immigrant in the United States. Mm -hmm. And this story resonated so much with her. Someone whose culture is so different from the culture I have represented in this book. And I I was just blown away. I emailed her back and I was like, thank you for sharing this with me. And she told me that um, back in Japan, she used to have like a, a, a spice or a tea shop and she still to this day writes a monthly newsletter for her old clientele. Wow. And she had written about my book in her newsletter. It's all in Japanese, but she had drawn some of the panels and she had shared with like um her old clientele how much she connected to this story. So yeah, it has ended up being this, like, you know, really universal story because it doesn't have any language in it.
0: That's so wholesome to hear. I'm so glad. <laughs> I'm so happy to hear that because, you know, it's true what you said, obviously you know, the, the origin point and, you know, the, the culture, the history and the, 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 society, every, all the attitudes, all of it are different, but the immigrant experience, there's so many similar, you know, elements, whether it's, you know, a Japanese immigrant, a Cuban immigrant, or like my parents who immigrated from Colombia, you know, there's a lot of similar elements, which as I was just briefly, cause I'm not done with it completely. And I'm, <laughs> I'm going to read it, read it. Well, read it how do you read it yeah, yeah read, read it. it because even though there's all no little dialogue uh view it i guess uh from cover to cover and, and you know but even in the brief you know just looking at it there's a lot of similarities that i'd even draw from my own parents like from the stories they told me yeah. of how it was because interestingly enough my parents when they left columbia they didn't go to miami they went to new york my, my parents lived in queens oh for, we're in queens I can't answer that question. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Uh, I just know they lived in Queens. I know he's, my dad has told me before where specifically in Queens, but I know it was Queens and they were there for at least four years or so. And then they came down to Miami. But point is the immigrant experience to the United States is such a powerful story to tell. And even if you're not, even if, cause you know, we're all immigrants, like the people in this country, yeah, essentially. But even if you're, your history of that is far removed, it's still so powerful. So I'm super happy to hear that. And um, leading to my question, what I was initially saying was that I'm really glad you added the further reading at the end of the book. You know, as a a history student, you know, being in all my history classes, something that my professors constantly emphasize in this discipline is the methodological rigor that it takes to, understand these complex stories and these complex histories and past. So besides, I know you mentioned the blogs that you were in it and reading it to gain some of more uh, historical traction to the story. What other sources or what other, you know, methods did you apply? And does not and again, it, uh, of course it doesn't have to be history related, but I'm just, you know, trying to make a, a point here, but what other sources or methods did you apply besides those blogs to draw more of that historical element
1: i mean a lot of it was reading books um and since it is a visual medium it was a lot of researching photos of what things would have looked like at that time and i'm very lucky in that i have my mom and she can give me a lot of her firsthand experience so uh, on the one hand that was something that was um incredibly useful and amazing to have but also sometimes really challenging Mm -hmm. Because growing up, I was given like the rose colored glasses versions of the stories of life in Cuba and how all the the nice, pretty stories. Um, And as I got older, I got some of the not as pretty stories. And then working on this book, talking with my mom, I got the ugly stories. You know, I'm old enough now to hear those. Right. So it did give me the opportunity to have those conversations with my mom and to learn these things about my family that I had, you know, been ignorant of my entire life and um, helped me gain a new perspective, not only on Cuban American history, but my own personal family history and right. the, the generational trauma that exists within my family. Right. Uh, so, yeah, that was both the most <laughs> rewarding and the most uh, challenging part was having that firsthand person that I'm so close to speak to me and, you know, other family members that I did speak to.
0: Well, you know, within all that, this kind of ties nicely to what I my next question is. You know, you didn't end the story in a tragedy. You mentioned, you mentioned in the panel how oftentimes the immigrant experience or the immigrant stories that are being told are often really, you know, tragic yeah. in, in ending. Of course, it's realistic to have some form of tragedy within the story, but the ending is just always so sad. But you decided to not take it that direction. and I, And I'm glad because... There is successful, you know, immigrant stories that yeah. have happened, you know, um, with my own parents, you know, and uh, me being a product of that, you as well. Like, you know, it's demoralizing is a really strong word, but it, it is a little bit frustrating to see some of the stories that are being told that are supposed to, you know, represent us. And it's they're like, trauma porn. Right. And it's, and I'm like, that's not really what went down. So, I'm, so just talk to us a little bit about why you decided to do that. I'm glad you decided to do that.
1: I got this idea and I was working on it as part of... I did this six-week program at Columbia that's called the Columbia Publishing Course. This mm. was at the point in my life when I was switching from theater because I kept falling down the subway stairs and I was like, I can't have a physical job anymore. My back hurts. I need a desk job. And I decided I was going to get in publishing. And this is a six-week program and one of the weeks is called Book Week. So that's why I was in the bookstore. I had to come up with a book idea mm. and then it, it, it's this whole thing. But basically, I have this idea and I'm feeling really... Um, protective over it because the group that i'm in is i think they were all white um and these are kids who are coming from private universities who are coming from ivy league educations and there, the person who was like the fake editor in this group he wasn't approaching this story in the right way whenever he was writing the copy for it so i'd have to go back and edit it and i i i can't remember exactly the context but i was i was it was something about how the story ends um, and he was like, you're not like he said something to the effect of like, you're not wrapping it up in a neat bow or like it isn't resolved. Like the, she doesn't the people who are mean to her aren't nice to her at the end or, or something yeah. to that effect. And I I I wish I could remember exactly what he said to me because it was racist and xenophobic. Um but I was like, dude, right. like uh, uh, people who are immigrants, their lives aren't just filled with like terrible, sad things. Right. Like, you know, there's joy in their lives right. and the whole purpose of their lives isn't just to confront the people who hate them. Right. I, I erased what he said to me, but that drove me nuts hearing that guy. So from the beginning, before I even wrote the script, I had this guy's voice in my head um, and his idea of what an immigrant story should be and it should right. be this like tragic thing or whatever. And, you know, as I'm working on this, people are being more vocal in publishing about BIPOC stories, and about immigrant stories and how they're being told um, and how they're being used as trauma porn. So I was very cognizant of that when I was working on this book. And I was very cognizant of the fact that I'm not an immigrant. I'm, mm-hmm. you know, I was born in the United States. Right. So I was very careful in how I approached this story. And I did want to, you know, she does go through difficult things. Of course. um, That's going to happen. Right. But that's not going to like ruin her. her, She's not going to let that ruin her life. Exactly. She's going to persevere despite Mm -hmm. what the people around her um, want for her, which is for her to fail. Right. Right. So I wanted to highlight that perseverance and that ability to strive for things in life when the the people around you are effectively trying to stop you from achieving your dreams or your goals um, and how, yeah, I mean like that's what the the prologue at the end serves to do. It sh- serves to show these these moments in her life where she was able to achieve a happy and fulfilling life. But knowing that like even in between those photos, there's probably the challenging moments too.
0: Right, for sure. And you know, I'm I'm glad that you know you kind of stood up to that initial experience of this isn't what you know my story or the story I want to tell should end because it's not realistic and if there's I mean your book is obviously a, a testament to that but if there's any other testament to that real immigrant experience in history it's literally like the survivors that we saw today yeah. how yes it was very. Difficult, very traumatic to you know have some of those memories come back into you, but like overall the common thread between those three stories, you know the the the, the tone the, the the vibe of them telling it was very you know they looked back at it with no regret, no no resentment. One of them literally said, "Oh, I don't look at the program with any resentment." No, and you know that's how it really is. So I'm glad that you you decided to for your story to not end it in that traditional tragedy ending. Yeah. So this is just more of me just picking your brains. What were some of the most interesting things you, you thought of that you heard or you were like, oh, that's interesting at um, today's event, whether it's your own panel or panel two?
1: I mean, listening in the first panel, listening to the the historian speak w- was really interesting. I'm so far removed now from people who are a part of Caribbean culture and a part of Cuban culture. So that alone was just like really wonderful to be around and to hear people talk about Cuban history in such eloquent ways because Mm -hmm. these days when I am interacting with someone and I'm speaking to them about Cuban history (laughs) it's difficult and it's challenging so it was wonderful to hear people who are so um, educated and informed on Mm -hmm. on on this topic speak I agree Everything about hearing the three women speak and, and and speak about their experiences and how like two of them who went to were in Florida City together who mm-hmm. are still still close. friends. Yeah. yeah, that that's so wonderful, because I, I can't even imagine if I was put through something like yep. that at that age and to have such a positive outlook on life. Right. and And they were they were so positive. You know, some people I think were asking questions and trying to hear about the challenges that they had. Right,
0: like, oh, what was, like, the the, the challenges of fashion, the challenges yeah. Of, of, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: And they were like, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> it, it was, exactly, it was
0: very, like, just Like a normal, you know, experience, you know, yeah. it wasn't so negative and distinct that it was like, Oh my god, oh, so if
1: there was mashed potatoes, I ate the mashed potatoes, yeah. and the spinach, I didn't want yeah, it. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it was so cool to to see that and, um, and, and to hear them speak like that about it because I think, like, you know, if you had the Hollywood version of that, that wouldn't be the story you got out of that, and that wouldn't be the answer you got to those questions.
0: Well, and to fairness to those students or those people that, um, at, were asking those questions, I, I kind of I don't blame them in the sense no. because that's kind of what's been conditioned to when you're when you're talking about an immigrant experience. What we're just basically been saying for the past, like, fifteen I mean, minutes these now. these
1: people went to the Midwest. The first time I saw what they eat in the Midwest, I was like, I would not touch that right. with a 10-foot yeah. bowl. Yeah. So, like, I get it. I get that, like, um, they would expect some level of culture shock or right. whatever that they, they just, like, didn't necessarily experience or, like.
0: And yeah. in props to them for, like, you know, I, and I, this is just me kind of you know being analytical i i can't say for for certain but the way they asked it wasn't you know with with like intention to like degrade or harm it was just it was a genuine curiosity that they were probably hoping like they i don't think they were like oh i I want that answer to be no they were just like tell me the real story because i you know i don't know it so yeah yeah i agree with your answers it's interesting you point out the the cuban history part of it and it was mentioned at the panel that you know cuban history is challenging to learn because a lot of people that you talk about cuban history you know they think they know it <laughs> more it's very politicized yeah, yeah too. exactly and that those were themes that were talked about so yeah i i, I agree with your answers give us a, a quick preview of what to expect tomorrow since you'll be the featured event <laughs> once again
1: i have no idea <laughs> um I don't have any questions, so we're, we're just going to talk. We're just going to chat. I think maybe it's going to be some sort of extended version of what I did today or maybe this, what we've just done all over right. again. It's going to be a fun surprise for me. Um, and then the cool thing is after I do that uh, conversation panel, I'm teaching a workshop for some students. Yeah. Which is going to be really cool. I'm a little bit scared. (laughs) Well, you've already
0: been through the the teenagers, which I think teenagers are more scarier than college students. (laughs) Well, I I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm wrong, honestly.
1: Yeah. No, I think teenagers are scarier. I think college students, like, they're paying to be here. So, like, you better be interested in what I'm saying. But, yeah, so that's going to be cool. It's going to be some english majors creative writing majors cultural studies and and some theater kids i i i hounded my old professor to be like can i please get some theater kids in my workshop like i'd love to talk to people who are studying what i studied and see like um the different paths that you know this kind of education can take you
0: one last thing that i want to talk about is and you've mentioned it here and there throughout your answers the theme of empathy and you know talk to us a little bit about you know, you said in the, in the Q&A session of, of today's session that part of the reason why you wanted no dialogue was that you felt like the fact that there is no dialogue could allow empathy to be shown more. Yeah. So just talk to us a little bit about that.
1: So in having a character that can't communicate with the reader through internal thoughts or through dialogue, you're kind of having a parallel experience to Marisol. Right. Because Marisol can't, speak to people and she can't read their internal dialogue so she's relying on body language and, and you know context clues alone so you are having the same journey she's having as she's adapting in the united states and i you know if you are feeling the same thing as another person's feeling you're you're able to have empathy for that person um and i think you know summer 2016 leading into fall 2016 uh and to this day i think this country in particular struggles with empathy mm-hmm and you know is very focused on on the individual so yeah you know uh, it was very important to me that i write a book that uh, tried to help people build empathy right so 100 percent. that was the the goal there
0: do you plan on writing any other novels other graphic novels that are rooted in some type of history in your future
1: i mean uh i'm not are gonna draw you, are n-
0: you one and done <laughs>
1: I'm not going to do another graphic novel for a while because that was hard. Yeah. Uh, it hurt. I yeah. It was very difficult. But I, I don't want to stop writing. Um, but I will say, like, this was uh, emotionally very difficult to work on this mm-hmm. book, and I don't think I I have the fortitude to work on something that that hits so close to home mm-hmm. emotionally. But I think that history is always going to inform how I approach stories. I've written I haven't sold it's not getting published but I have written um a uh, young adult fantasy that is kind of set in a you know fantasy second world Cuba that pulls so much from Cuban history because I'm so fascinated by Cuban history right. it is really unique um within the Caribbean so yeah history is always going to inform my stories and how I approach them but I, I it's terrifying to to work on something that's historical and be like, oh, my God, like you I want to make sure that I'm getting all these historical facts. Right. Exactly. But if I'm writing fantasy, I can play with the historical right. facts and move yeah. them around to suit sure. my story, which I did a little bit here in this mm-hmm. book. But yeah, I don't I do not have the fortitude or the patience to to work on something so rooted in, in reality and in history. Um, it, it's really hard.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, that that's kind of what I wanted. Like. When I was asking the question about the methodology, that's kind of what I wanted to hear your thoughts on was like how difficult was that balance between writing something fictional but rooting it in in historical context? Like that's kind of like, you know, so because I, I, as you just said now, I can imagine that could be very frustrating.
1: Yeah, I think having a degree in theater kind of prepared me for that. So like let's say you're designing costumes for a play that's set in the 1840s. You're going to have to take liberties with how you do that. It's probably going to have zippers in it because Uh the actor needs to get into it quickly. So I already have that training of how to finagle historical facts Mm -hmm. to fit modern needs. Mm -hmm. Um, I think theater prepared me for that in a big way. So learning where you can make sacrifices in a story to better serve the story being told because I think that's the most important right part right when you're telling when it's fiction mm-hmm. is honoring the story that you're trying to tell when it's nonfiction, fiction well mm-hmm. that you can't right. take those liberties right so yeah uh, making sure that you're you're honoring the story you want to tell and taking the liberties w- where it fits
0: and to add to that like you know it's frustrating but then if done right it's very rewarding I could imagine you know yeah. getting that getting paying homage and respect to what actually happened but at the same time allowing this new perspective to unfold through this fictional medium you can imagine it's very rewarding
1: yeah it it was very cool very glad i got to do it um it was such an interesting journey and i got to to learn so many things as i worked on it
0: so what are other you know whether it's I know you said you're not going to work on graphic novels <laughs> in the near future, but what are there some... Uh, I know you mentioned that you're writing right now an adult fantasy. What what are some other works that you are currently working on for I do, the future?
1: It's, I don't have anything announced, so <laughs> but I, I do have um, a book. I have two books I'm working on. Okay. Um, you're not going to see anything until 2024. Oh. But they're they're young adult, adult romances. They're, it's, of course, a Cuban-American character. Mm-hmm. Um, of course of Course, right, and uh, it, it's gonna be a fun romp. It's gonna, it's it's very light in tone, and it's exactly, I think, the palette cleanser I needed between Isla Island uh, and whatever else I do in the future. I needed something like fun and light, uh, that I could just have sit back and enjoy.
0: Well, Alexi, thank you so much, Alexis, thank you so no much. Worries.
1: That's what my grandmother called Alexi because you know, <laughs> Cubans don't pronounce yeah, but, S's at the yeah. end, <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, thank you very much for taking the time out of um, your very busy itinerary here in Orlando. I really do appreciate it. For those that are listening, this was probably the – and it's not you. It's literally, like, everyone that was involved involved with this event, including myself. This has been probably one of the most difficult podcasts to get scheduled, and I'm really glad that you were able to, you know, be willing and available to have this chat with me because I really wanted – panel one to be represented and i feel like you know dr martinez fernandez i've been fortunate enough he's my mentor i absolutely admire him and he already has been on this podcast so i understood you know and but your perspective on this historical event is something so unique something that i've never encountered something that this podcast has never seen so when you know, you came back and you were like, oh, yeah, I could do it. And then it ended up being that you were the only one that could do it. I was like, this is great. This is really <laughs> great, actually. It kind of played out. So, Perfect. Yeah. So I'm really I'm really happy that you're here and you were, took the chance to talk to me. I really appreciate it. And I will see you tomorrow. I will be there at uh, day two of the event. And I don't want to mess up the, the plug. So I'll let you say uh, where listeners could find this book.
1: I mean, you could buy it wherever books are sold. Okay.
0: Yeah. (laughs) There you go. There you go. It's worth it. So go go buy it, everyone. Thank you again. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you for having me. This was so much fun.
0: That was the pod. I hope you all enjoyed it. I hope you all appreciated this medium that Alexis was bold enough to take a graphic novel and still find that balance between history and fiction and still root it within this very powerful story that is operation Peter Pan. Something that I, that I didn't get to mention to her directly was in the back of the book. When, you know, you all finished reading after getting it, she gives a brief overview of operation Peter Pan. And I found that, and I find that very, you know, coming from the history perspective, I find, I, I really do appreciate that because, you know, that in this wordless graphic novel, of course, of course you understand this unique perspective that's going on and really being the, in the shoes, being the, in the, in the lens, in the, in the eyes of someone that's actually living the history, uh, but providing in the epilogue, you know, in written form, a brief history of it. Um, that was, that was really, that I really appreciate that. And that's something that, I did not mention to her, so I'm guessing I'm mentioning it to her now if she's listening, so I really do appreciate that. But, yeah, I hope you all enjoyed the episode. It was a great one. It was probably the most unique one of of Night's History Cast just because of the medium, and I'm glad I was able to do it. That's really cool. And I'm also glad that it was able to highlight Day 1, Panel 1, of the Operation Peter Pan event. Stick around. Stay tuned. Panel 2 will be the next episode of this of nights history cast so please subscribe to this feed wherever you get your podcast i'm sebastian garcia thank you all for listening i very much appreciate it and i will see you on the next one thank you everybody